Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Because another Stick to Wrestling episode is here. I want to thank Martha and the Vandellas for writing and recording that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we will give you a wicked good and a raw bone podcast. Thanks for listening. My name is John McAdam. Big announcement. We have bonus content at the end of this episode. More on that later, but hang on. We'll have that to you in about 60 minutes. Before we get rolling, um, I want to invite you to join our Facebook group. If you just put in the word Stick to Wrestling, it'll come right up. You're invited. Uh, follow me on Twitter. Uh, just put in the words John McAdam and follow the guy who has uh, dudes fighting with chairs in his avatar. I finally hit a 1,000 followers. Thank you very much. I, that just makes me thirsty for more. That's the way I am. I want to thank Lance O'Donnell for his generous contribution to this show. Thank you, Lance. And if you would like to contribute to Stick to Wrestling, my email for PayPal is prowrestlingarchives at gmail.com. No contribution is too small and certainly none is too big. And with that, before we get rolling, I want to introduce our guest. Uh, Steve Generelli finally returns to Stick to Wrestling. Steve, how are you doing? Hey, it's great to be back, John. And uh, it's, it's kind of interesting that on the day we're recording, we're one day away from my Yankees playing your Red Sox in a one-game playoff. Yes, uh, I'll tell you, not to not stick to wrestling, but I love the playoff format because you really want to win the division and not get stuck playing that game. But at the same time, the Yankees and the Red Sox seasons would have been over, like, I want to say July or August because Tampa had such a good year. Yeah, Tampa, and I live in Tampa, uh, they, they look so lethal as far as a team. I mean, they're cooking on all cylinders, but... Uh... You know, um, I'm hoping the Yankees can pull off a miracle. Uh, they seem to play well at Fenway these days. Uh, and if they don't, well, good luck to the Red Sox. And y y you need, it's not a miracle. You've got like a 50 50 chance of winning. And should the Yankees win, I hope they get swept. I hate the I'm not, I'm not a gentleman like you. <laughs> well, hey, you know, I, I try to bring some class to this show. So <laughs> I got to muck that up. It's okay. All right. Before we get rolling, on our central topic, um, I want to thank Eddie Wright for reaching out to me. He listens to the show, and he said he was listening to episode 171. Eddie shares this information. Ric Flair verbally stated that Vince McMahon Sr. was on the NWA board and was the deciding vote to get Ric Flair the NWA title for the first time. So thank you for sharing that information, Eddie. I want to share it uh, with all of our listeners. And he also mentions that one reason they put the title on Harley Race in 1983 was to give him the record of seven NWA title reigns. It's kind of a jab at Luthez to break his record because Lou was on the outs with the NWA. Steve, any thoughts on that? It's interesting. I mean, Lou, um, I mean, Lou, after his last title reign, which I think ended in 67 when he lost to Kaniski, uh, 69. Just, oh, thank you. Thanks for that correction. He, uh, it was kind of like uh, an outlaw, I guess you'd 66. say. No way! <laughs> yeah. Narrate your voice, it was 66. Thank you, Mr. Kippelman. Uh, <laughs> so, so basically... Oh, that's uh, right. I forgot about Kaniski. Then he got it from Dory. Dory was 69. Am I right about that, Lou? Yes, sir. Oh, okay, that's what I got mixed up. 
But, but after after he lost the the belt, after Thez lost the title, um, he was pretty much like an outlaw. I mean, he was wrestling in uh, outlaw shows, wrestling uh, in Memphis, you know, re- wrestling in these kind of uh, offbeat places. We're working in the IWA in the mid seventies. He really just kind of like left the NWA family, and I could see why there'd be some resentment there. Well, I mean, Lou worked for whoever was willing to pay him. And if the NWA wasn't willing to, you know, to give him a job as a referee, as a commentator, whatever, but Eddie Einhorn was, I mean, I can't blame Lou for that. Oh, yeah. And and he did the same thing in the 80s. I mean, he was there to, you know, give his title to uh, Adrian Adonis, of all people. And uh, when Adrian won the, the title for Joe Blanchard and and then about a year later, he was in the WWF refereeing the Piper Snooker. Uh, That's right. Strap match. So he. He went to the highest bidder, I guess you'd say. And, you know, no one can blame him. I mean, he, Lou saw the wrestling business as a means to make money, and I, I can't blame him for that. But anyway, we're doing a show that I am very much looking forward to, and Steve, you're the perfect guy to do this with. We are doing the 1981 Year in Review. It's amazing that 1981 was 40 years ago, at least it is to me. Quick thing, we are going to omit anything from the fall of 1981 from the WWF because uh, Stick to Wrestling is going to have a new quarterly segment where we review uh, the WWF by season. We'll be doing the fall of 1981 in a few weeks. So we're going to stay away from that. We're going to talk about everything else. Sounds good. All right. So. Biggest story, in my opinion, of 1981 was the NWA switching the title seemingly constantly by by that relative standard. Harley Race, Tommy Rich, Dusty Rhodes, and Ric Flair all at least got brief title runs. Yeah, um, I'd say that was got to be, I would say that was probably the biggest story of the year. You know, Harley Race had been champion, a very brief run in the early 70s, and then he had a a longer run starting in 77, beating uh, Terry in Toronto, Terry Funk. You know, I was surprised that he was still really in the mix at this point. I mean, I'll try to use like a baseball analogy. He'd be like my, um, you know, if, if if championship wrestlers were starting pitchers, he'd be kind of like my Don Sutton, kind of a reliable guy that you could always depend on. He'd be out there every fifth day. But um you know, was Harley really the needed as the man in the NWA, the focal point of the NWA in 1981? I'm not so sure, but but I mean, he was a success. Uh, he did a great job. But what do you think about Harley in '81? I thought he was starting to look too old. I think he was starting to get too heavy. And I think, in my opinion, he was getting stale as champion. I mean, obviously, I was a lot younger back then. So were you. Time goes by much, much slowly. Uh, and, you know, to me, the guy who won the title when I was in seventh grade, still holding it when I was a junior in high school, it was just it was just too long, in my opinion. Yeah. Sixth it, grade, actually. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, we all know, like, what they were looking for in an NWA champion, you know, somebody who was reliable, could make the dates, who could, you know, protect the title if need be. And, uh, you know, a good worker in the ring and somebody who was maybe even more of a tweener type than a true baby face or a true heel. And Harley could do all those things. But I kind of agree with you. I mean, having him, you know, looking probably like 10 years older than he really was, uh, you know, he was like in his mid 30s here. Uh, he looked probably at least 45 or so. 
I can see why they're starting to look at guys like Tommy Rich and Dusty and Flair, who I'll mention very soon. Uh, it was just time to to mix it up a little bit. You know, one thing, another thing Eddie wrote to me was that one thing they wanted in an NWA champion was a guy who wasn't going to get double-crossed. And my own opinion is by 1981, you didn't have to worry about that anymore. No, I, I agree with that completely. I, I think that day had long been um, finished, probably maybe uh, seven or eight years earlier, if not earlier than that. I don't think anybody was going to double-cross or even attempt to do that on Harley Race. I mean, his reputation was known worldwide. And, um, you know, and, and even, like you say, other guys that would hold the belt. Uh, but, you know, you know, even a year later, the Flair-Backland match, I mean, uh, from Backland's book, he talks about he was worried about a, a double cross in that match. So I guess maybe us as smart fans, we look at it one way. And with Backland uh, and Flair, they're kind of looking at it from a completely different perspective. I can kind of see where Backlund was coming from because they could film the match, film the double cross, have it air on nationwide TV, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the WWF championship has been tarnished. And let's be honest, we're a year and a half away from the war breaking out. Right, right. Uh, but, 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 I mean, I just don't see it in 1981. Being that, you know, the, the companies were so friendly with each other, I mean, supposedly uh, Vince uh, Sr. was talking to Eddie Graham every day on the phone. You know, these promoters all had kind of a tight relationship at the time. I don't think anybody was going to go into business for themselves to uh, try and steal the title. No, I, I think, you know, I, like I said, I can see Backlund's side of it, but at the end of the day, it is impractical. Tommy Rich winning the NWA championship for me was a big surprise. And of course, you know, I read that he lost it at the same time I read that he won it. And I thought, I, I really did not like that week-long title reign. I'm At the end of the day... I think it, it made the NWA belt look a little bit bad because how can how can two guys fight in every town, you know, every day of the week? To me, that exposes the business a little bit. No, oh, that's that's a good point. I, I didn't really really even think of it that way. I, I, I guess because the the way the title changes had been so kind of like um, laborious as far as hey let, let's do a title change once every four or five years. Uh, just the fact that they did change it up a bit and have a little more spontaneity of like, hey, on a given night, Tommy Rich, this young kid with all this moxie, uh, pulled off a miracle. And then, you know, a few days later, uh, you know, uh, fortune didn't prove so uh, good for him. He lost the title. Uh, I was kind of thinking more of that idea of, uh, you know, miracles can happen, that kind of a thing. I can totally see that. I mean, if you go to the matches in Gainesville or Macon, yeah, you could see the title change. So there's there's that side of it. Yeah, and, and it was interesting in the fact that I mean, in this era, this is long before pay per view, and at least it could you know give the house show idea like, hey, you know, maybe a title could change on any given night. You just don't know. Yeah, that that's a good point. I have mentioned that I thought Dusty Rhodes should have held held the title longer than three months. Um, any thoughts on that, Steve? I, I think uh, no. I, I think that's a really interesting uh, topic. I mean, it's like you know we always talk about like uh, you know Hogan and Bruno and Backlund and these guys who you know 
you gave them the ball and they just ran with it forever. I mean, Backlund had the title for about six years. Um, you know, we, we know about the other two guys. But Dusty was so unbelievably popular. I mean, worldwide, I mean, for the most part. And, you know, what was the hesitation to give him a longer run? I mean, I know just from, you know, watching him and knowing his story, uh, I think he liked playing the underdog and like, you know, the, you know, poor me, you know, I'm, 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 I'm the victim here. You know, he's always playing kind of like the, the, the poor guy who's down on his luck. Uh, maybe he felt like having the championship for, for a longer time, he couldn't play that role anymore of the victim or whatever. But I, I think from business wise, I think he would have popped the houses even bigger with that title around his waist. I mean, sure. All you have to do if you're, you know, the local promotion in the Carolinas or Georgia, Florida, build up a heel and then have Dusty beat the heel and send everyone home happy. Yeah, that's not, that sounds like quite a uh, familiar formula we're, we're quite used to, right, John? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And, of course, you know, we talked about this on the show a month ago when Ric Flair won his first NWA championship. I mean, this was a big event when he won it because you're setting the table for the NWA championship. You may not have known it in 1981, but you're setting the table for the next 10 years. And this is the beginning of Ric Flair being a very long-term uh, NWA World Heavyweight Champion. I had the pleasure of hearing uh, Ric Flair on a, a satellite wrestling radio show uh, maybe uh, a month or two ago before that kind of scandal hit about to him and uh, the flight from hell. And he uh, he was very, very... Uh, I, I was surprised how articulate he was talking about this period of his career uh, he basically said, uh, and he was so, I mean, it was almost like he was on truth serum. He was saying that he was really green in 1981 and, and he was still learning so much in 1981 and uh, he wasn't even ready to be champion, he felt. But uh, he said this was kind of the year that he, he grew into being a champion and, and really began to understand uh, the process that goes into it as far as traveling the territories and, and trying to work uh, different matches with different uh, types of opponents. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, with all that Ric Flair has been through, you know, health-wise in the last few years, I mean, I've heard him do shoot interviews from a dozen years ago or 10 years ago. and. I, I never really felt he was being sincere and, uh, you know, candid with us. But, man, uh, to hear him recently, I think, uh, you know, maybe because of his life circumstance and, you know, he realizes he wants to tell his true story. Uh, he was very authentic and very uh, compelling with what he had to say about this period of his career. I agree, Rick. I was very surprised when I first read Rick's book, and I think it was 2003, um, where he talked about his earliest days as the NWA champion, he felt like it was not a successful run. And I respectfully disagree with Rick. I totally bought him as as a world heavyweight champion. And, you know, our late 81, 1982, early 1983 were, I mean, just amazing years for me personally, witnessing him as champion and just accepting him as, you know, the best in the business. 
Yeah, I, I mean, you and I kind of um, grew up together in wrestling from 76 on. I mean, I can remember getting the magazines, just, just from the magazines and the pre-tape trading era and pre-observer era. I mean, you could see all this uh, uh, coverage of the Mid-Atlantic Territory and him and Valentine, Greg Valentine, coming up together and they were teamed together in 77. And you could tell that both of them were like, um, you know, like top number one, you know, draft choices who were, you know, playing at, at the top of their game and, and to see Flair and Valentine, and of course, in WWF, uh, to see them both get to be main eventers and then Flair winning the title, it just seemed natural. It just seemed like, you know, their time had come and, and Flair was definitely the standard bearer for the NWA from, from this point forward. Yeah, I mean, I like the the comparison you made. It's like um, around that time, Dave Parker and Eddie Murray like just burst burst out on the baseball scene. You're like, wow, this is just the beginning for these guys. And I think we knew it was just just the beginning for guys like Ric Flair, Greg Valentine, Bob Backlund, etc. Oh yeah, and and you know, and I, I've said some negative things about Flair even on your own podcast here. Uh, but but the, the the body of work that he's done is just in, incomparable. I mean, he just uh, what he did in the seventies, what he did in the eighties, you know, even in the nineties. I mean, he was slowing down a bit, but I mean, I mean, he, he created new memories. I mean, what he did in the WWF with the Royal Rumble, the the matches he had with Vader were very compelling. He had uh, you know compelling uh, series with Savage and the, the NWA or WCW in the late nineties. And you know he just um, you know he he just resonates. He's he's like a star that never burns out. And Ric Flair is uh, you know like an immortal superstar. Yeah, in my opinion, he is. He is my favorite wrestler of all time. I absolutely should have driven to Albany in 1992 to see that Royal Rumble. Albany is only like two and a half hours away. The rumor coming into that Royal Rumble was that Ric Flair was going to draw number thirty and enter an, into an empty ring. Like, two guys would have eliminated each other, and that's how Rick was going to win the championship, and that turned out not to be true. I would say pro- that was probably the greatest Royal Rumble appearance of all time. Oh, I, I agree. And, and I think, I think I mean, as time has, has proven, I think it was the greatest Royal Rumble of all time. I mean, I can't think of one that would even come close. And uh, and I think I think for us longtime wrestling fans, what made it so special were those little moments he had during the match where he got to face off against some of his old foes from the past, like the Roddy Pipers, the Kerry Von Erichs, the Jimmy Snickers. And uh, it was just great. It was almost like, yeah, Ric Flair, this is your life within a, a one-hour match. That's a really good way of looking at it. And you're right. I mean, you know, and I remember like right after it ended, they did an interview with Ric Flair and there he was with the WWF championship on his shoulder. I mean, just what a moment. But anyway, we, we got to get back to 1981. Yes. Yes. Um, I have the second biggest story as Vern Gagne retiring. Of course, he came out of retirement multiple times after this, but he was no longer full time. And Nick Bockwinkle. He retires as AWA champion. His final match was against Nick Bockwinkle. He won cleanly. And then they did the thing where the AWA just gave Nick Bockwinkle the belt because he's the number one contender. I hated it. Any thoughts on that, Steve? <laughs> we should have Brad Brad Breitzman on for this for this topic. Oh, we talked about it with Brad. <laughs> but it's just it's just um I mean it, 
<laughs> it's just funny. I mean, even talking about the idea of, uh, you know, you have an opportunity to maybe put the belt on somebody new. Like, hey, let's get somebody new over. Uh, but instead, it felt like this little, you know, the AWA was this little tight country club thing where there were all the same guys who had been there year after year after year. And there was a hesitation to to, to deviate from their winning formula. And um but, and I, I, I just, I guess I should say that, I mean, it just seems like the AWA was so much more successful than anybody wants to give credit to it. I mean, the WWF and their formula was fantastic. And, and, you know, everybody says within the business, New York was the place to go to make money. But if there was a second place to make money, the AWA seemed like it was the next best place because you were working a, a slower schedule. You had more time off to be with your family and the travel schedule wasn't so insane. I mean, you didn't have to travel these, uh, you know, drive a million miles in, in within two or three days. But, uh, I mean, Bachwinkle, like a Ric Flair, you know, the two of them are arguably among the very best of all time. You know, they would, you know, as the years would go on, I mean, you'd see the Otto Vance and the Rick Martel and different people come and go, but, I can see why he he put it back on Bachwinkle just because he was a guy he could trust and he was really, you know, as close to the promotion as the family was. Well, Bachwinkle won the title in 1975 and he held it until 1980 when Vern finally, and Vern was in his 50s and he decided to give himself one more run with the title. I mean, you're putting the title on a guy, in my opinion, who is an all-time great, but at the same time, he's already a little bit stale. I mean, it was almost like, the AWA, it's like they didn't know Vern was going to retire. It, is, it felt like they had no plan. Yeah, you know, and, you know, and no offense to Vern because he was a great athlete and, and you know, supposedly a shooter in his day and uh, an Olympian, of course. He just looked a lot older than he was even. I mean, he looked, uh, if he was, oh, yeah. you know, 50-ish or 55, he looked like he was 70 or whatever. But uh, he was a very limber guy. And, and uh, I, I looked at his record book, uh, tried to look at his, his matches and his schedule. And, I mean, most of the time in the late 70s, he was mainly, like, tagged up with Mad Dog Rashawn. And, and he was in a lot of six-man tags and, and really had cut way, way back on his singles matches. So to see him become champion where, you know, if wrestling was legit, he probably wouldn't have even been a ranked contender. He probably wouldn't even have been in the top 20. But, uh, you know, he owned the promotion. So uh, And he, he had been a former champion. So I guess he booked the match and he won the title. And and then, um, you know, just slapping the title back on Bachwinkle, who, as you just said, had held it for five or six years, kind of seemed like a wasted opportunity. No, it was one of those things where, I mean, just reading about it in the magazines, the AWA did not seem all that entertaining. And before I know what all of you are saying, yeah, I know the WWF wasn't all that entertaining either compared to Florida, Mid-South, etc., Another big story from 1981, Andre the Giant legitimately breaks his leg. No one knows what really happened. He, he was by himself in his hotel room. But this, you know, it led to a, it was a big deal. I mean, this was the sport's greatest attraction, and he's out indefinitely. It was definitely, I think, in retrospect, a turning point in, in Andre's career. Um, I think after this, not only did it slow him down physically, and he wasn't as limber in the ring, but... I think this was when, you know, his lifestyle and, 
the, the lack of mobility, the weight started to really begin to pack on from this point forward, and uh, and it did a number on his back, and and he, I mean, he still had good matches after this. In fact, he had a lot of great matches with Killer Khan, who did most of the work, I would say. But uh, you know, as the years would pass on, I mean, with each passing year, you would see. Andre more and more diminished, and it was sad because uh, if you go back to uh, you know YouTube or however you're watching the matches or the on their the network, Andre could do some wonderful things and and be a real uh, athlete in the ring and take great bumps, but um, you know this this is the beginning of of his being diminished, unfortunately. It really was, and of course the wrestling world was changing, but I mean, Killer Khan, I mean, talk about getting a lucky break. I mean, he seemed like he was on his way out of the WWF. Instead, he gets a major feud where he gets two matches against Andre in every major city in the WWF, including uh, a Mongolian stretcher match at Madison Square Garden, Philadelphia, and Boston. Yeah, those matches, I remember uh, one or two of them aired on USA Cable, I can remember back when it happened, and uh, and, and the matches were always really compelling, because you know, Andre would just beat this poor guy from pillar to post, just um, basically annihilate him, and they would bring the stretcher in the ring, and they'd begin to put Killer Khan on the stretcher, and you, you knew this was it, you, you knew the match couldn't go any further. And then he would just somehow like crawl off or raise his hand and he would just go back for more. And, you know, Andre would, would probably just uh, plop on him or, you know, just the big, the big sit drop on him. And, and it was finally over and they put him on the stretcher. But, um, but Killer Khan proved in those matches that he had a lot of uh, tenacity and it really did a lot for his reputation, those matches with Andre. I thought they did a great angle. I had never seen an angle like this before. Andre comes out. He's on crutches. He's in a cast. Fred Blassie comes out, confronts him, and then Killer Khan attacks him. I'm like, you don't attack a guy who's on crutches. Come on. Yeah, well, it, it was wrestling. I mean, anything goes. I know. I just didn't see it coming. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, and Blassie, Blassie's always the instigator, and uh you know, I mean, it just shows you how good the matches were because that feud won the Observer Match of the Year, and, and the Observer crowd was always uh, kind of anti WWF, even in the very anti WWF. Oh yeah, even in the pre-expansion years. So uh, it, it just proves how good that uh, series of matches was. Okay, another big story from 1981: Hulk Hogan debuts in the AWA after filming Rocky Three, which would come out in 1982, excuse me. Hogan originally came in as a bad guy, managed by Johnny Valiant, and the crowd just decided that they loved him, and he was now a babyface. Yeah, yeah, that that's the exact story how it was. Uh, Johnny Valiant had been a you know heel with the Valiant brothers in the AWA and the WWA and the WWWF and and pretty much most of the territories in the whole entire country. So he was already established as a heel, but uh, there was nothing they could do to to change what the fans saw in, in, in Hogan. They just uh, you know saw this huge blonde guy with the muscles, and they just took to him, and and the rest is history. Yeah, you know, it's funny. The WWF, until Jimmy Snuka in 1982, their audience was downright Pavlovian. I mean, they, you know, if they're announcing who's in a battle royal, they would cheer the baby faces when their names were announced, and they would boo the heels when their name was announced. And I guess things were just a little bit different in the Midwest. Yeah, it, it must be. Uh, I mean, I remember 
hearing from somebody that attended the matches back in this era that uh, the first time that Hulk Hogan showed up on WWF TV, they saw this blonde guy in, in the back and you know he hadn't come out yet they weren't sure who it was and you know he Hulk Hogan in 1980 in the WWF wasn't a known name yet anyhow but the fans assumed it was superstar Billy Graham returning because he had long blonde hair and uh at least he did back in the day and uh but it, it wasn't you know Billy it was Hulk but I guess you know in the WWF like you say the fans were you know, controlled by the managers. You know, if the manager was aligned with you like a Blassie, then you had to boo the guy because, you know, Blassie had such a track record of being such a despicable guy in, in the wrestling, uh, you know, as far as the storyline goes. But uh, in the AWA, uh, I guess just seeing Hogan, who was so large and larger than life, and uh, it was a fresh face. Like, you know, going back to what we were just saying about the AWA, they had such a... Uh, small cast of characters that they kept using, like the Baron Von Raskies and the Larry Hennigs and the Mad Dog Bashans. I guess just to see a newcomer come in and get a big push it was probably exciting to those fans. I, I can't blame them. I, I remember the first time I saw Hulk Hogan. Um, it was, I, I think, the week before Thanksgiving, he debuted on Boston TV, and I went to New York for Thanksgiving, and I was talking to my friends who were also wrestling fans down there, and we were like, wow, this guy's like superstar Billy Graham, only way bigger. And I should have known right away he was going to be a Titanic-level star. Yeah, I, and, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, Vince, who was just the announcer then and the son of the promoter, I'm sure he was already had, you know, dollar signs in his eyes just thinking about Hogan and the potential for what, what could be uh, once, once maybe he got in charge and what he could do with uh, somebody like Hogan. Yeah, and he, you know, totally turned the AWA upside down. I mean, he was their top star from, you know, basically from his debut until he left for the WWF in late 1983. I remember reading in the aftermags about Hulk Mania, not Hulkamania, Hulk Mania. Yeah, I, I, I never heard that before, but, uh, but you know, Hulk, um, you know, as the story goes, I guess Vern had gotten to be really uh, chintzy with him like they were marketing these like cheaply made hulk hogan t-shirts and uh, Vern was you know keeping the bulk of the sales money or not sharing enough with hogan and hogan was making much more money in japan than he was in the awa and you know he just wanted to go to new york to make more money vince was talking to him and putting a bug in his ear you know you'll make the real money here and you know, if Vern had been more open and honest, and maybe he would have stayed, but I, I have a feeling that New York was just too big of a temptation for him not to go there. No, I think, uh, especially the game plan that Vince McMahon had, I mean, there was just no way that Hulk was going to say no to Vince. I mean, Hulk, I, I like Hogan. I'm a fan. I also know to take every word he says with a grain of salt. Hogan said that Vince Sr. tried to blackball him because he decided to do Rocky III instead of being assigned to the Mid-Atlantic area. And, you know, I guess time heals all wounds, as they say. Yeah, I, I think it does. I mean, just like we've talked about with uh, the guys that, you know, were in the WWF that went to the IWA. I mean, most of those guys were back in a year or two. I mean, uh, they may have had them for a little while, but, you know, they were back in business pretty soon. I agree with you. I mean, the every guy who wrestled for the IWA was supposedly never getting work and wrestling again 
once that went under. And of course, everyone got their jobs back. But anyway, all right, another big story. Sam Muchnick announces that he will be retiring. And on uh, January 1st, 1982, he promotes his final show in St. Louis. Yeah, I, I mean, this is probably a bigger story than people knew then or even now. I mean, as far as just the impact, I mean, he seemed to be one of those few people that uh, the other promoters listened to. And he was kind of like the guy that, you know, unified the NWA promoters and kind of kept everybody together and working together. And it was, you know, it was supposed to be a cooperative of these promoters and well, everybody working for the well-being of, of each other and, and uh, working in harmony. And, and he was the one that was making it all happen as far as the harmony and the cooperation and once he was gone, it was kind of like, uh, I think the the waters got more shark infested. Yeah, my own opinion is that Sam was kind of losing his grip. And by the time he retired, I mean, supposedly Sam did not give permission for Harley Race to lose to Tommy Rich and then gain the title back a few days later. And if Race were to dare do that to Sam Mushnick, that tells me that Sam was kind of losing a little bit, maybe even a lot of his power by then. Yeah, yeah, and I've heard that, you know, Jim Barnett was involved in that, and and Jim Barnett was, you know, one of the people that, that, you know, was one of the decision makers as far as the NWA title goes, but, um, you know, I think the great Tim Hornbaker book about the, you know, the the death of the territories, you know, talks about uh, the, the the state of the NWA in this time frame and in, in the years before, as we get into the 1980s. I mean, you know, looking at all the NWA territories. I mean, yes, you have the Mid Atlantic, which is doing gangbusters and ha- had been doing great for for decades, and you have Georgia, who is doing you know big business at this time that we're talking about. But look at most of the rest of it. I mean, it's. A lot of a lot of dead areas. I mean, you have the Sheik's area that is is either out of business or just uh, hanging on by a thread. You have um, Central States, which has always been a problem. You have you know, Portland was doing well at that time. We have to say that. But there's you know a lot of the the old look at L.A. I mean, L.A. in the second biggest market in the country was was pretty much out of business at this point. So the N.W.A. had lots of challenges at this point in time. No, I agree with you. I mean, I look back and there were major cities like Los Angeles, like San Diego, like Phoenix that were not getting any major league wrestling until the WWF got on a plane and crossed over. And I mean, the rest of its history, if you can, if the WWF can fly to Los Angeles and have a show, they can certainly fly to Chicago, Houston, Detroit, wherever. One reason I don't have Sam retiring at the top of my list is because if you weren't inside the business, it didn't matter to you. Like I, there was an article on inside wrestling talking about Sam's final show on one, one And, you know, to me, it didn't make that much difference, but if you know what's going on behind the scenes, yeah, this is a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's something that would resonate. I mean, you know, you talk about what would happen to St. Louis after this, uh, you know, with, um, there was a St. Louis wrestling club, there was Larry Matisic and then Vince came in in 84 Nothing was ever the same after this. It it definitely is a major news story and definitely one of the biggest stories of the year. Yeah, I even I think that prime Sam Mushnick, let's say in the 60s or 70s, I still don't think he would have stopped the WWF from expanding, the war from happening, etc. I mean, that 
to me, that was just a technology thing. You know, it used to be that your local wrestling would air on UHF television, and now Vince can get it on a national cable company, so why not promote wherever that's airing? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, and I know you've said on the podcast that, you know, Terry Funk himself said that um, once once he saw that you could get the superstation in your backyard, whether it was Texas or wherever it was, and you see Tommy Rich and those stars uh, from Georgia, I mean, like all bets were off. I mean, it's it wasn't going to be the old-fashioned way of doing things. I got to hang out with Terry Funk in 1989, and he told me and a couple of other people the story about how one day he's home in, in Amarillo, and he's going through the channels on his cable, and this is 1979, and all of a sudden he sees uh, the Georgia Championship Wrestling is on, and he's like, that's it, the territories are finished. Terry was a sm- is a smart guy. Uh, anyway, another big news story, 1981, Roddy Piper goes to Georgia and becomes a heel announcer. This is the first time this has been tried as a regular thing in a major promotion, and obviously it set the tone for what wrestling was throughout the 80s and into the 90s, quite frankly. No, absolutely, and who better than Roddy Piper to do it? I I know I don't think you've seen it yet, uh, the A&E bio of Roddy Piper, but uh, they did have some footage of him as an announcer on there, and Piper's charisma is just off the charts. I mean, they they had him in a couple of um, old clips with Ric Flair, and, and Ric Flair is you know so over and so you know over the top as far as his personality. But I mean, he he, he to me looked minor league compared to Piper. I mean, Piper just had so much charisma, and 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 as far as how captivating the story was of Piper being a heel commentator. If you might remember, um, you know, a little TV show called Entertainment Tonight, a Paramount syndicated show, did a feature on Roddy Piper and Don Morocco and the thing that happened with Gordon Soley. Entertainment Tonight did a feature on that little angle or or the fact that Piper was a heel commentator on this show. And that was a national mainstream show, which is still on today, 40 years later. And, um, you know, wrestling didn't get coverage like that back then, but but because of Piper and his charisma and Morocco and Soli, they made the air. No, I I did see that, and I thought it was really good. One thing about Piper, like, you had guys like Jesse Ventura, Bobby Heenan. I mean, obviously, they were being heels on the air. Roddy Piper was subtle about it, and that's what I liked about it. It was almost like he was trying to be neutral, but he couldn't help but be a jerk. And, you know, he would say things like, um, oh, no, that was a real good maneuver. But if it was me, I would have. He was always needling the baby faces. And the first real Piper's pit, in my opinion, was when he came out and he interviewed uh, Bob and Brad Armstrong after they won the the national tag team titles on Thanksgiving night in 1981. And Brad went out and bought a Corvette with his $25,000. And Piper goes out and he's interviewing Bob Armstrong and talking about, you know, what kind of a parent are you letting your son throw this money around? <laughs> that, that, that's one I've never seen, but I'd like to look that one up. Uh, but uh, Piper just, uh, you know, whatever era we're talking about, whether it's in San Francisco for Roy Shires, if it's in L.A. against the Guerreros, the WWF, uh, I mean, even the promos he did in the WCW uh, were, were phenomenal. I mean, I mean, I you know, he was way past his prime. He had had the hip-hop operation. The poor guy was... 
you know, not he probably shouldn't even have been wrestling at this point, but uh, he could still get himself over, and and he, he was, you know, definitely a, a Hall of Fame uh, icon of wrestling. No, I mean he was a trailblazer. Every promotion had to have a a wise cracking heel next to the straight announcer, and that includes you know the big promotions, the medium promotions, and the indie promotions. It it got to the point where it was overdone, in my opinion. But Roddy was the trailblazer. Next up, the Freebirds invade Georgia and become the big stars there. I mean, I would say they were the biggest stars in Georgia, like early 1981, mid-1981. Yeah, I think what, what had happened there, and, you know, that was an area, a very hot area of wrestling. I think that they had gotten uh, so accustomed to these older wrestlers, like Mr. Wrestling 1, Mr. Wrestling 2, and these were the guys that the Freebirds were feuding with. The Freebirds has brought so much uh, uh, intensity and, and youth. Uh, I would compare it to like when uh, the uh, NWO invaded the WCW, uh, just kind of like a, a faction of three guys coming in, raising hell. And, uh, you know, it, it happened at a different level uh, compared to, say, the NWA angle. But uh, the Freebirds revolutionized uh, that part of wrestling. There, there were factions. There were things that happened, like uh, you know Piper's faction in the WWF. Uh, years later, I mean, these guys were trailblazers. Totally. And think about it. You know, other promotions tried to have their own Freebirds. Like the Memphis tried to have a Midnight Express. No, not Bobby and. Dan or Bobby and Dennis, but it was like Coco Ware, Bobby Eaton, and Dennis Condry, and it just didn't happen. It, di- it didn't mesh the way Hayes, Gordy, and Roberts meshed. It, it was it was perfect. They were the, the right three guys for those three roles. Yeah, I, I think, you know, every tag team seems to borrow something from their predecessors. Uh, I mean, I, I kind of see them as kind of almost like an 80s version of the the old Hollywood blondes, the uh, uh, Buddy Roberts, and uh, who, of course, became a free bird. And uh, was the other one was Jerry Brown. And, yep. of course, they had Oliver Humperdinck as their third member, but he wasn't really a wrestling member of the team. But, but they had that kind of, uh, when they were doing their entrances to the ring, they were pompous and they were, over the top and and you didn't really know like who are these guys where are they from but uh you know gordy brought a certain you know toughness and believability with his size and strength and, and his maneuvers and buddy roberts was the wrestler of the group you know with the grappling and the traditional from montreal you know all this great skill set he had and and then big mouth uh, michael hates uh really was the leader and uh kind of the, the face of the team. So they each one brought something unique to the to the package. Incredibly, in the middle of 1981, I thought it was incredible. Michael Hayes turns babyface, something I did not see coming in a million years. Um, the Freebirds were in Georgia before I started getting the show on cable, but I did get to see them in Mid-South. Michael Hayes did not, to say the least, have the traditional baby-faced look. The guy was out there trying to be David Lee Roth, <laughs> and they they made him a baby face, and it worked. And I should have known it would have worked because he's such a great interview. Of course, he can play both roles. Yeah, I, I hadn't. Uh, I really hadn't seen him myself until the UWF TV hit, hit uh, upstate New York, where I was living uh, back then, and uh, he was announcing the Bill Watts show with Jim Ross and. 
I thought he was phenomenal. I mean, he was, uh, you know, very, very similar to Jesse Ventura as far as he had that hip look and the hip attitude as a, as a heel announcer. And, um, and the Freebirds at that time were still kind of a hot item. But as, of course, the as the 80s began to close and we get into the early 90s, the Freebirds uh, and the remaining uh, versions of them were kind of uh, disappointing, to say the least. Yeah, and, you know, they had Terry Gordy and Michael Hayes in early 1989. Well, Jimmy Garvin got brought in eventually, but, I mean, all things get stale. And even then, in 89, I, I felt myself wondering, you know, has this act gone as far as it possibly can? And the answer was yes. I mean, you know, Gordy left eventually. Hayes stayed. The Freebirds became Michael Hayes and Jimmy Garvin, and they were just another tag team. Oh, yeah. But but to their to their credit, I mean, Gordy and Williams to me was the best thing in the Bill Watts version of WCW in nineteen ninety two, and uh, and Michael Hayes. Uh, <laughs> I guess the best thing I can say about him uh, now that uh, you know Howard Finkel is no longer with us and Steve Lombardi's off the payroll, I guess he's the uh, longest employee at, at uh, Titan Sports or the WWE these days. Well, I, I never thought of that, but you're probably right. He, he debuted as Doc Hendricks, I think, in <laughs> 1995. And he just sit there, I sat there and shook my head. I mean, the WWF would, would just tear down your past, and I, I'm glad they don't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there was a, a brief moment, I, I bet you, you may have even forgotten this, John, that, that uh, when he, um, I think they brought him back as far as like an active performer uh, to the, kind of a, to the main roster. Uh, he Didn't he manage very, very briefly like the Hardy Boys, like when they were debuting? Yes, he did. That was 90, I want to say that was 1998, but yeah, he was the Hardy Boys manager. And you know what? I love Michael Hayes. I'm a big fan, but you have these two really young, really hip guys, and you've got Michael Hayes as their manager, and he's clearly, you know, the, the older guy at this point. I, I thought, not. I don't think he, he held them back or brought them down, but he definitely didn't add anything. I, I thought it was just funny, just the sense that they, they, after after five or six years of calling him Doc Hendricks, they they allowed him to call himself Michael Hayes for for a brief time. <laughs> Good on them. All right, <laughs> another story. Sergeant Slaughter finishes up in the WWF. He invades the Mid Atlantic area and quickly wins the United States title. Steve, as as we know, Sergeant Slaughter was a WWF creation. They brought him in August nineteen eighty. I had never heard the word Sergeant Slaughter before, and I read all of the magazines, and I wondered what would happen to this guy when his WWF run ended, and I got a quick answer. He's going to be a major superstar wherever he goes. Yeah, I, I think, I think you know, uh, as I said earlier in the show, I mean, the promotions at this time were, were very, very friendly. I'm sure there was, you know, uh, word of mouth going around about who was good, who was bad. And I think he probably had gained a reputation for himself in the AWA when he was a super destroyer of here's this big guy who's a really good worker. And, and then the WWF gave him a character or a persona and he was having great matches in the WWF. I know you said on the podcast before he worked with everybody, uh, Andre, Bruno, Backlund, Morales, he wrestled everybody literally and then now he's in the NWA in a brand new uh, market, uh, and he became really one of the top stars for Crockett during this uh, 
time when uh, they were having a wrestling boom in the Carolinas. So he was a great fit there. Um, they really took to his uh, gimmick uh, as far as Sergeant Slaughter. And um, and before you know it, he'd be back in New York uh, in a couple of years because they really that gimmick was over so huge in New York. It really was. And, you know, the, the gimmick and the name, even back in 1980, I thought they were a little bit over the top. But, you know, that's WWF. They do a lot of stuff over the top. And I wondered how that would translate into another territory. Well, it translated quite well because he was a major star. He was the United States champion. He was the NWA World Tag Team champion. They had the feud against... uh steamboat and young blood that that broke record so obviously you know i got my question answered no this guy's going to be a star wherever he goes yeah and and you know yeah the name i i realize is a gimmicky name but but he had the um in the ring i mean he, he delivered the goods so i'm sure once they saw him wrestle and how tough he was and the bumps he could take and his you know there's nothing he couldn't do as a wrestler so he he was a good fit in in mid-atlantic no, I agree with you. Uh, another big story, Ken Patera leaves the WWF, invades Georgia, becomes their top star, and quits the promotion while still being the, the Georgia national heavyweight champion. I still wonder exactly what the hell happened. My understanding is Patera just could be grumpy, and they asked him to do something he didn't want to do, and he just walked out over it. I thought that hurt his career, Steve. Well, and maybe you could shed some light on this for me because I don't know the whole story. Was was Oli the Booker then? <laughs> don't believe Oli was Booker in the summer of nineteen eighty one. I could be mistaken. Actually, um, I think um, I, I from the research I did, I think Bill Watts may have been the Booker at that point. And you know, Patera had just come off of a huge run. Uh, of uh, being the IC champion, being the Mid-Atlantic champion, I think about the same time, or the U.S. champ, whatever belt he... Yeah, the Missouri title, I'm sorry, Missouri Heavyweight Championship, which was a precursor to the NWA Championship. So he was making huge money in 1980. I, I'm assuming it was just probably... A, he, as Patera's a noted hothead, he probably blew a gasket about a payoff and said, I'm out of here, screw this. Yeah, he was. Things were never the same for Patera because at this point he's looking like a potential NWA champion. I had no idea he was forty years old, but he didn't look it, so it didn't matter. And yeah, then he goes back to the AWA and he's part of a tag team. And yeah, you know, Patera and Blackwell were the AWA World Tag Team Champions, but that to me seemed like too small a role for Patera, who I thought was, you know, NWA slash WWF world heavyweight champion level talent. Yeah. Patera had been um, a very, very uh, mid-level at best guy in the AWA in the mid seventies. He really became a huge star in New York facing Bruno, facing uh, Backlund and years later and uh, huge in the mid Atlantic area too. You're right. I mean, it was definitely a, a come down. I know he had a, another tag team besides the one Blackwell. He had a, a short-lived team with Bobby Duncombe too. And then or right around this time frame, or maybe a year later, I can't remember exactly when, uh, he had a, a detour into Memphis. I think it was 81 or 82, around the time the cop was there. Oh, it was 83. Okay. So so that was, again, you know, Ken Patera, who was a huge moneymaker in wrestling, 
ends up in Memphis of all places, you know, known for its weak payoffs. So you know, his career did take kind of a downturn. Yeah, Memphis went through this weird period where they brought in Patera, they brought in Jesse Ventura, they brought in Stan Hansen right around the same time. I think they were opening up the pocketbooks a little bit, trying to get a pop. Here's something I recently learned, Steve, and I, I heard it from a a very credible source. Ken Patera was going to was supposedly going to win the Intercontinental Championship in 1984 instead of Greg Valentine. Um, and then he had his legal issues, and the WWF decided uh, to go in a different direction. But that's you know, the Intercontinental Championship was a huge deal in 1984, and you know the thought of putting it on Patera, it, you know, obviously he's still very well thought of as as talent. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Is that something I've never heard before? But if it's true, that would have really um, added more luster to his uh, reputation at the time. I mean, as what ended up happening, he teamed with Stud, and they cut Andre's hair, and he was involved in the beginning of that angle, and and essentially he was replaced by Bundy as Bundy joined in that big angle uh, when Patera, I guess, went to jail or prison or whatever. But Patera was just never, yeah, they tried to bring him back in 87. It just wasn't meant to be, but but he just never got back to that uh, peak point where he should have been. No, I mean, when he came back in 87, I mean, obviously two years in prison is going to take a lot out of anyone, and he just didn't look or, or seem the same. I mean, obviously, I mean, the guy has been in a federal penitentiary for a long time. Well, I think, you know, and, and maybe I'm a bigger fan of, the, of him than most people, but I think he looked great, really, when he came out of there. I mean, when he did the, the angle with Heenan, um, you know, when he debuted, uh, it's just that, you know, within the well, first six weeks or a couple of months, uh, he you know blew out his you know, arm. Uh, he was wrestling Tom Rocky Stone, uh, noted AWA jobber, and uh, did a number on his arm. But after that, he was just never the same. I mean, he, he couldn't uh, do the big power moves anymore. He gained weight. He just, you know, it was just it was like male, male menopause it hit him all of a sudden. Oh, yeah, they had big plans for Patera. Um, they had him teaming with Hulk Hogan in main events throughout the Northeast or in, throughout the WWF. And there was talk that he was going to get the main event at WrestleMania four after he turned on Hulk Hogan. And he just didn't get over that. He got the push and he just didn't. I don't know. His, his feet didn't grow to fill the shoes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'll still say that the injury was the thing, uh, but but you know, him as a baby face it is a bit of a stretch. I mean, I, I'm a fan of his, but yeah, I, you have to be able to get over in that character, and I don't think he really would have done that well as a somebody that the kids would have been clamoring for. No, definitely not, Ken. This is a positive I'm saying about him. He had that great natural heel charisma. Some guys have to go out there and put their foot on the gas and be the bad guy. Patera did not have to. It, it came from the heart. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bobby Heenan has some great stories about him, and uh, we'll just leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> Another big 1981 news story was the feud between Pat Patterson and Sergeant Slaughter. Sergeant Slaughter was a red-hot heel in the WWF. There was a guy at the at the tapings every week that had a giant bed sheet with the word Gomer written all over it. It was on TV every week. 
Sergeant Slaughter starts taunting Pat Patterson, who is, you know, just the doing his role as the color commentator. He would interview Slaughter. He'd be very polite, and Sarge would get in his face and challenge him and say that, you know, my Cobra Clutch challenge is for $5,000, but for Patterson, for you, it is $10,000. Then one week on TV, and Patterson would just be like, well, I'm going to study the hold. We'll see what we can do. Uh-huh. And <laughs> one day, Slaughter goes out there and slaps Patterson in the face, and Patterson's had enough of this guy, and he puts the chair in the ring right then and there, and they're doing the challenge. And the arena was going crazy. I always thought they should have said, okay, we're going to do this next week, you know, give us a week to look forward to it and you know tell all your friends to tune in but no they just have this giant explosion on tv steve give us your memories of the pat patterson versus sergeant slaughter first the the angle that they had on tv and then the matches that they had okay first off the, the hold was already really over big time i mean people really believed in this cobra clutch hold as something that you couldn't get out of it would would knock you out it was kind of like a sleeper type hold and so, so that was already over big time. Uh, Pat Patterson had been really respected as a as a top wrestler. I mean, initially when he came in, he was really hated, but because he was so uh, worked so hard and his work was so good, when he turned into a fan favorite, I mean, they looked at him as a really uh, respected older wrestler. And uh, so then, like you say, that the, this challenge happens on TV. Uh, Patterson uh, gives it his all and uh, kicks off the ropes, and and he did escape the Cobra Clutch, and I think uh, didn't uh, slaughter like hit him with something and like knock him out, or I I can't remember what got the feud going from that point forward. Uh, Patterson got out of the hold, and then Sergeant Slaughter attacked him, and then he started hitting him with the chair, okay. and. Wrestlers came out to break it up. Like, I remember Dominic DiNucci Mm -hmm. came out and a couple of prelim guys, and they could not separate these two. And then Gorilla Monsoon comes out. I was never a big fan of Gorilla Monsoon's ego, and he just starts throwing Sergeant Slaughter around. It's like, (laughs) Gorilla, you're retired, and he's not. Try to look a little bit vulnerable for this guy. No, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad you refreshed my memory there. Uh, As far as the the matches go, uh, they were phenomenal matches. I think that the one that people remember the most is the one from Madison Square Garden. Uh, their big uh, was it was it was it called a boot camp match or what, what was it? It called? was an alley fight. Alley fight. That's right. An, uh, uh, an alley fight. Or anything goes, and you can wear anything you want. And I know Patterson showed up with a I Love New York shirt on. Uh, great where, touch. Yeah, that was a great touch. And and they had their match. And and, and the reason why the match I think is so uh, remembered even today. When the when Slaughter uh, bladed himself, I think he went a little too deep or uh, hit the wrong part of his forehead, and he really uh, it was a major hemorrhaging job there and uh, bleeding profusely. And uh, I don't think anybody had bled that much in a in a garden match, uh, maybe ever. So no. uh, that that that's what really led to it being a legendary match. They, they they took some great bumps, but the blood was like nothing anyone had ever seen in an MSG match. No, definitely not. It was a great match, and I was lucky enough to see a similar match in uh, Worcester maybe a month before Madison Square Garden. 
But yeah, I mean, it, it, it was a great match. And, and like you said, I have had never seen blood like that at a Madison Square Garden show before. And it was a just a great finish to the match, too, because you had the Grand Wizard throwing in the towel and, and Patterson got his revenge. I mean, what, it was one of the best feuds of the Backland era, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, I, I would agree with that. In fact, uh, I, I remember buying uh, back in the days of buying DVDs. <laughs> I bought a uh, um, WWF one. I think it was called like Bloodbath or something like that, or a Cage Match or something. And, and, and it did have this match on there. And they interviewed uh, both Slaughter, who was a road agent at the time, and uh, Patterson, who was still a WWF advisor. And you know, and Pat was talking whimsically about the match, like uh, he had done something really remarkable, uh, and. Uh, you know, it was he, he was still you know great in the ring, taking great bumps and, and working the match really well. But he was acting like you know that, that they had done something special. But I think it's just the blood, to be honest. I I really enjoyed the match, but you're right. The blood is what really made it memorable. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stan Hansen finally returns to the WWF after being gone since the beginning of 1977. Stan was conspicuous by his absence because he broke Bruno's neck. I mean, I was waiting for Stan Hansen's comeback a lot earlier, like 78 to 79. And, you know, obviously I I later learned that he and Vince Sr. were not best friends. He made a lot of money in Japan. But, I mean, I remember, you know, in 1980, late 1980, he came back. And 1981, he had actually had the matches against Bob Backlund in New York, and he did have matches against Bruno San Martino in Boston. Yeah, um, I uh, recently reread uh, parts of Backlund's book, which is phenomenal, and uh, in the book, he Backlund says that uh, the beginning of the heat that he had with Stan Hansen supposedly happened back when they were both breaking into the business in the Amarillo Territory. Supposedly, Hansen was one of... Uh, their top trainees that the Funks had trained. But uh, for whatever reason, the Funks took a liking to Bob, and I guess they put Bob over Hanson in a match that they had, uh, uh, like a TV match in Amarillo, and then supposedly there was heat between the two of them. So when they had this feud in 81, Bob kind of thinks that Hanson still held some resentment for what had happened all those years before. And uh, and also... um, the way the way Bob tells the story is that unlike most of the challengers that came in to face him, who would just take you know McMahon Senior's uh, demands and just follow the orders, he was wanting to be more like, well, let's do this finish instead, or let's let's set something up for the third match, and and it was usually just like, well, you know, Mister McMahon's going to say if we're going to have a third match or not. So th- there was definitely dissension amongst uh, Backlund and, and Hanson before their matches. And I guess the first one was just your typical, let's uh, you know have a, a, a DQ, a blow-off to set up a second match. And then they decided to have a third match, a cage match. And uh, Golan, who was you know, an uh, agent for Vince the Elder, basically told Bob, you know, give him nothing in this match, you know, and so the match, if you go back and watch, it isn't really a a gem as far as the two guys working together. It's like Bob doing a lot of non-selling, and it's not really the kind of cage match you want to see, but, um, you know, Stan Hansen is is one of the, probably one of the greatest wrestlers of this era, or or any era, and um, especially his work in Japan, and 
And, uh, you know, his, I think his matches with Backlund are kind of memorable just for being different. I mean, he definitely was a different opponent and definitely worked with Backlund differently. Yeah, I remember now, taking us back. I got a tape list from a guy in like early 1987, and he had a bunch of the uh, Madison Square Garden shows. And I remember I got five tapes for $100, and I, this was one of them that I picked, Bob Backlund versus Stan Hansen in the cage. And I was like, Hansen was in the ring for, I want to say, five or six minutes before Backlund came out. And... The match was quick, and nothing really happened, and before Bob's book came out, the general speculation is, well, Bob has the flu, <laughs> because everything looked wrong in that match, and then we learned that Bob just wasn't going to give him anything. Yeah, and, and you know, I think what, what I had said earlier is why why they had such bad chemistry, but I would also say that, you know, certain wrestlers are, are better with certain types of opponents, I think. Stan Hansen, just the way he is, the way he works, I think he was much better against a brawler type wrestler like a Bruno or a Pedro Morales. You know, Backlund, I think at his best is against a Patera or a, a Greg Valentine, more of a wrestling guy than a brawler. So I agree. It, it was just kind of a just not the best matchup for for either guy. No, it wasn't, and I have not gotten to see the full Stan Hansen versus Bruno San Martino matches from Boston. Those took place right before I started going to the Boston Garden shows, but mm. I'm a little bit surprised that, I was always a little bit surprised that they didn't redo Bruno San Martino versus Stan Hansen in New York, and, well, we learned why, because Stan, and once again, Stan and Vince Sr. just weren't getting along. Oh, yeah, and and I think, too, I mean... You know, Bruno didn't wrestle. I mean, his, Bruno's final uh, garden match was uh, December 1980 against Slaughter. And, uh, you know, he, he was, would retire in October, which I know we'll probably be talking about that soon. But I, I, I think he may have already known by this point that uh, they ripped him off of the Shea Stadium money. And <laughs> that could be a reason why he didn't end up wrestling on any of the MSG shows in 81, because, uh, you know, he was probably upset about that. I think he was just basically retired. Bruno did not wrestle very much at all uh, after he lost the championship. I was I was actually very taken aback by how little Bruno wrestled. By the way, we're recording this on Monday, October the 4th, which is the 40th anniversary of Bruno's retirement match at the, wow. the then-brand-new New Jersey Meadowlands. Uh, one last thing, Ox Baker has a role in the Escape from New York movie, which I told the story. I went out of my way to see that movie because Ox Baker was in it. It's a good movie, and no, I still have not seen The Princess Bride. Any thoughts on Ox Baker and or Escape from New York from you, Steve? Well, a, little, a couple of things. I remember when that movie came out and the, and the commercials were very effective, uh, and uh, Ox Baker was featured very, very prominently in those commercials. And, the, and I said to myself, hey, that's that guy from wrestling. And, you know, it it just is a wrestling fan. It was something exciting to see, uh, you know, a guy from, from wrestling, which was such a, you know, uh, cult sport back then and something that was so underground. You were shocked to see someone in the mainstream that had been from wrestling. Um, I, I never ended up seeing the movie, to be honest. But uh, and, and I think it's also worth noting that Ox Baker had a kind of a, forgotten run in the WWF in 1980. They brought him in for a TV taping, and I think there are three matches that exist that I think they used to be on YouTube. I don't I don't think they're there anymore, but uh, I think just they saw him wrestle, and they just figured uh, 
kind of like uh, what was it, Mighty Joe Thunder? <laughs> it just—it was one of those things that just wasn't meant to be, and they—they they just pulled them off the schedule. So, I mean, we we talked about this on the show maybe two or three years ago. My theory is, I mean, Ox Baker, he was bad, but he wasn't so bad that the WWF couldn't have put him out there for one match against Backlund and then one match against Andre. Um, I think he was, you could have hidden him. My theory has always been that if you're in the same room with Ox Baker, you know you're in the same room with Ox Baker. Is he the loudest person I've ever met? If he's not, he's in the team picture. <laughs> so I think well, he just pissed off the wrong guy. Who who needs this guy in the dressing room? Well, well Sweet Hansen was was the other. Uh, you know, you're trying to think of a comparable guy that Backlund wrestled in that time period. Sweet Hansen was was very uh, very raw boned, but but also very big and kind of immobile. And uh, you know, th- that was the thing with Ox. I mean. Could Ox be thrown into the ropes? Could he be thrown into the turnbuckles? I mean, he seemed kind of immobile as far as running around the ring, uh, and you need that out of a challenger. Um, so, I mean, they were able to get a one-and-done with Sweet Hanson. They probably could have done it with Ox, and Ox had a much better look, I think, than, than Sweet Hanson had. But uh, this is something about him McMahon uh, Sr. didn't like. I mean, yeah, you're right. If you can't come off the ropes, if you can't get whipped into the turnbuckle, if you can't take any sort of a bump, uh, we can, there's really nothing we can do about with you. But anyway, Steve, I want to thank you for coming on and discussing the top stories of 1981. No, it was great to be back, John. Always good talking with you and going over wrestling nostalgia. All right. Now. We talked about bonus content. We've given you the hour of wrestling talk, and now we're going to give you a little bit of bonus content. If you have not seen The Many Saints of Newark, the Sopranos movie, and you don't want spoilers, stop listening to this podcast right now because we're going to talk a few minutes about that movie. Uh, If you're not interested in The Sopranos, you also want to stop listening to this podcast, but if you are interested, if you have seen the movie, Steve and I are going to talk about it for a little while. Steve, my favorite television shows of all time in order. Number one, The Twilight Zone. The Twilight Zone movie sucked. It was terrible. <laughs> I I saw. I went to the movies one time. I saw the preview, and I got all excited because it was coming, and I dragged my girlfriend and my friends the, the day it came out to see it, and I'm sitting there going... Literally saying out loud, is this going to get good? When is this going to get good? It was horrible. And if you like the movie, okay, I didn't. It wasn't a case of inflated expectations because I saw it on cable when it came out, maybe a year later on HBO or whatever, and I still hated it. And I saw it maybe 10 years ago, and I still hated it. So there we are. My second favorite show of all time is Breaking Bad. And the Breaking Bad movie was absolutely terrible. It was To me, it was leadenly dull. It was totally not necessary. My third favorite TV show of all time is The Sopranos. And after my previous two experiences, I tried not to get too excited over The Many Saints of Newark, even though I subscribed to HBO Max just to see that movie. <laughs> Steve, I thought the movie was fantastic. And you disagree with me. Tell me why. Well, well. Before I get to that, uh, since you touched on the Twilight Zone, I have to interject this: the world premiere of Twilight Zone, the movie in 1983, was actually in my hometown, Binghamton, New York. And the reason why oh, wow. the world premiere of the movie was in Binghamton, New York, was because 
Rod, Rod Sterling's from there. He, Rod Sterling was from Binghamton, and he was, of course, uh, and I think you and I have talked about this before, He uh, a lot of the classic Twilight Zone episodes, like Walking Distance, were uh, based on uh, things that happened in Binghamton and memories of his youth and things like that. Uh, but but we were there, and uh, <laughs> actually, uh, Richard Deacon, who was in the Dick Van Dyke show, uh, he was at the premiere, and, and he's another Binghamton uh, native. And um, but I, I felt exactly the way you did about the Twilight Zone movie. I mean, we'll get to the Sopranos in a second, but God, that movie was frigging terrible. I mean, you, you we lost uh, Vic Morrow and, and some young children in that terrible helicopter accident, and and then the other three chapters were an abomination. I know well, people at the time said, oh, John Lithgow was phenomenal playing Shatner's role. Yeah, I'm a Shatner fan to this day. I thought he was still better. But uh, but anyhow, let's get to The Sopranos. I, I'm like you. I, definitely The Sopranos is, is one of the all-time greatest TV shows. I, I'd never heard anybody dispute that. And and um, I, was, I was so excited and so like... Uh, you know, count me there when I heard there would be a Sopranos movie, you know, I said, count me in. So, you know, when I follow these things, you know, it's, it, we got to the six months away and a month away, you know, the movie's finally here. You count it down. I watched the movie on opening night uh, on HBO like you did. You know, it's basically the story of Dickie Moltisante, who is the the father of Christopher. And in, in the storyline, he's supposed to be the guy who, uh, was kind of like the mentor to Tony and, and how Tony became who he eventually became, uh, Tony Soprano. I just felt that the film was good. And I'm not saying it's a bad movie. Uh, I'm just saying that what it lacked was, you know, w- w- you know, if you were to say to somebody, what made the Sopranos, you know, resonate or what made the Sopranos stand out? I think it was a combination of great writing the the combination of incredible humor and incredible uh, violence and and <laughs> vulgar you know, vulgarity, and also, um, I mean, even though it was a dark dark show, The Sopranos, I mean, it, it, next to the Waltons, it was one of the best family shows you could think of. As far as you know, you have a very dysfunctional family, but the, the love of the family was still there, and it was still a thing. The movie, you really don't have any of that. I mean, there, there's definitely moments of humor, not not a lot. You have um, a lot of stuff that happened back in the 60s, and you're trying to, I think the filmmakers were trying to make a bigger statement about, you know, how terrible the race relations were at the time. Um, I think a lot of, the, you know, some of that worked, but some of it didn't work for me. And, um uh, you know, it, it, it was interesting in the sense of, yeah, this is showing me the origins of the Sopranos, but I'd rather see the Sopranos and see how they came to be, something like that. All right. Um, one thing you had mentioned is that the story was about Dickie Moltisanti, you know, Chris's dad, and we weren't really clamoring for that. I liked the concept that Dickie was the star because you have Uncle June. Well, we know who Uncle June is, and you're kind of limited because you've already established that character. Uh, Johnny Soprano, we know who he is. You're kind of limited because you have to stick with that character that's already been established. Dickie Moltisante, you've got a blank slate, a, a blank canvas to work on. You can make him anything you wanted to be, and I absolutely loved the character. 
I, I thought he was good, but but to me, he didn't resonate. I mean, I thought he was an interesting character, but it's not like where, you know, Tony grabs you off the screen and you're just like following him. <laughs> you're ready to j- join the family when you're watching him and, and what he does. You know, one thing that I really liked in the movie, and this is more of a personal thing than anything else, um, there was a scene um, right near the end of the movie where uh, they have this big close-up of this restaurant, in the, and the restaurant was mentioned briefly in the classic series. Uh, they mentioned bars, B-A-H-R-S. It's a really known uh, uh, a seafood house uh, that's it's actually located in the Atlantic Highlands. I'm sure Brian Lass has been there, uh, but my wife and I have been there a couple of times. And, and, and you know, to see the restaurant that we went to is right there on the screen is really something. And it's a remarkable, if you like to eat uh, clams, it's the best place to go to. But uh, just to see it on the screen, and, and this is a place that my uh, wife's uh, father took her to when she was a little girl. So it really resonated in that sense. But, um, you know, we have to mention that, you know, Tony, Tony uh, or James Gandolfini's son is in the movie playing a young version of Tony. I, I thought that that, that worked uh, a bit. I mean, there's definitely a resemblance to his dad, which made the, the film, uh, you know, really touch on the memories we all have of James Gandolfini. Uh, but to, to me, watching him, even though I think he did a good job capture, capturing his dad, he seems like a you know a young guy who's just a young actor and he's learning his his trade. He's not like a a veteran skilled actor. He I think he's got lots of potential, but you know he he just um, you know he he captured some of Tony's essence. But you know whether they have him come back for sequels, I don't know. I, apparently that's in the works from what I hear. I did not know that. I first heard that the movie was being conceptualized as a uh, prequel, maybe a year after the, the Sopranos went off the air in 2007. I I thought, I've seen the movie once. I've seen, you know, it just came out last Friday. Today is Monday, and it was a football weekend, so you know what I was doing la- this weekend. Um, and I saw, like, the first hour of it again once. So I, I'm going to watch the movie again because I enjoyed it that much. They had some great scenes in that movie, in my opinion, where the first one where Dickie Maltesante has a confrontation with his dad and it ends up getting physical and he winds up killing him. And I'm sitting there as he's bashing his head against the the uh, the steering wheel. I'm like, he's not going to kill him, is he? And like, you know, boom, all of a sudden this guy's lifeless and the guy drives his dad's corpse through a riot into a, an abandoned down not a warehouse but some sort of a, a, a machinery and he burns the guy alive and he blames it on the riots going on in Newark it was one of those things that i don't believe in shock value for the sake of shock value in a movie but that had shock value to me yeah it, it did it was it was a that part of it was very in line with what we had seen in the past on the sopranos that kind of uh you know, disregard for human life. You know, you hear one moment and gone the next. Um, it, it just, um, you know, t- to me, it had, you know, I thought it was a good movie, not a great movie. I just think that there was um, things that were lacking. I mean, it, he was a good character, but, you know, some of the other characters, like the girl that he was involved with, you know, she was, you know, had a definitely a, a sexy look to her, but, 
I mean, I really didn't care about her so much. I mean, when you watch a movie, you're supposed to care about the characters and their outcomes. And, you know, again, she didn't really resonate with me. I loved her character. Um, really? I forget her name, but it was basically uh, Dickie Moltisanti's dad brings her back from Italy. Uh, she doesn't speak a word of English. And then Dickie kills his dad and takes the girl, right? <laughs> so they have a scene where, you know, they're having a wonderful day. They're out on the beach and she confesses to Dickie that she's having an affair with someone else. Now, Dickie's married, and this is his girlfriend, and he is so devastated when he learns that it's his rival, Leonard. He keels over. He's in so much pain, and and then he attacks her, and then he, like, drags her into the sea. And I, I was, like, watching this, and I'm like, there's no way he's going to kill her. He's going to back off. He's going to realize what he's doing. And I'm like watching. I'm like, okay, Dickie, get off her. You're going to drown her. Dickie, no. And he drowns her. Like, bang, she's gone. Like you said, complete disregard for human life. I, I was stunned. <laughs> well, I, I will say, um, I, I guess what happens at the very end of the movie kind of um, it, it kind of ends the movie on a happy note, kind of an uplifting note. I don't want to say what happens, but it brings you – a feeling of uh, it, it ties in more with the series, and it gives you kind of a feeling of nostalgia for the classic series. And and I think I think if they get the right script, uh, and uh, if Miss Young Young Gandolfini continues to improve as an actor, I think that they can you know um, show you more of uh, the classic characters. Uh, you know, the the wife and the children and Uncle June and you know, all the classic characters uh, done by new actors. So uh, we'll see where it goes. But um, I, I think it was uh, a good first effort. Not not um, I, won't, I guess I would give it maybe, um, you know, I'll give it three stars, three out of five stars. Um, I thought it was fine, but it wasn't one where I'm just clamoring to watch it again. I can't wait to watch it again. I might blow off Monday Night Football and watch it again tonight. Um, I absolutely loved it. My favorite scene in it was, uh, what's her name? Olivia Soprano yeah. is talking to the school's uh, psychologist or yeah. whatever. And she tells Livia that, you know, t one of Tony's favorite moments was that, you know, when Livia was showing him physical affection. So we go to the next scene and Livia is trying to have a nice lunch with Tony. Tony's going along with it. He's very happy. He's connecting with his mother. And Livia is just such a miserable, insufferable <laughs> person that she can't just have a nice lunch with Tony. It has to turn into an argument and her being persecuted and everything. I mean, you, I mean. You know this, Steve. The Sopranos was originally supposed to have Livia was supposed to have a huge role in that, and then the real life actress died. But I loved that scene. There were plenty of great scenes in the movie, especially the uh, when he when Johnny shoots a bullet through her beehive. I was dying laughing. I, I thought it was a great movie. Four and a quarter stars for me. Well, well, that I, I, I'm glad you, you enjoyed it. I mean, we're friends. I'm glad that you really enjoyed the movie. <laughs> you know, but uh, but I, I believe me, if they if they do another Sopranos picture, I will be first in line. I, I still love the, the franchise, and I can't wait to get more of it. Uh, that that's a that's a three star review from Steve. Well, I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, there's your bonus content, everyone. Steve, thank you for being part of this. Thank you, John. Uh, always good to talk with you.
All right, and I want to thank Lou Kippelman for producing this show, making it sound halfway decent, and we'll see you next week. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day. Thank you.